Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society, and this is the after show for Peak Eve by Lon Zimmett. It's really fun doing these interviews with writers I don't know, but there's just something really nice about getting to talk to writers I've worked with, especially if it's someone who I haven't seen in a long time, which was the case with Lon. We worked together on what was Lon's first show, Worst Week, way back in 2008, and uh, he's gone on to lots of great shows from there. We talk about almost all of them. We also talk about going from a writing team to a solo act. It's a transition I made to... And so it was great to really get into it with Lon. It's very scary, but out of that fear can come some really great things, uh, which which was the case for Lon. We also addressed the rumors that he was responsible for the cancellation of happy endings. There's lots of great stuff here. So please enjoy my interview with Lon Zimmett after a brief message. Hi, I'm Hal Loveland. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. And we're the hosts of We Got This with Mark and Hal, the weekly show where we settle the debates that are most important to you. That's right. What arguments are you and your friends having that you just can't settle? Apples or oranges? Marvel or DC? Fork versus spoon? Chocolate or vanilla? Best bagel? What's the best Disney song? We Got This with Mark and Hal. Every week on Maximum Fun, we do the arguing so you don't have to. Oh, all answers are final for all people for all time. We got this. Did we work together? With, was that that wasn't your first job? Worst that week, was, was our it? that was our first job. I mean, our it official okay. first job, or our unofficial first job, was on Nobody's Watching, which was the web series that Bill Lawrence did with Garrett Donovan and Neil Goldman, and they hired Dan and me to basically write these webisodes. Which before that was before anyone knew what a webisode was, but it was mostly me and Dan sitting in the psychiatric ward of the Scrubs Hospital, updating MySpace pages for $300 a week. So that was, I guess, our first entry into the business, but then Worst Week was our first official staff job. Okay, so that's how Matt Tarsus knew about you guys from Bill Lawrence exactly. to hire you on Worst right. Week. Okay, right. so then let's let's back. You're from Manalapan, right? Um, I'm from Manalapan. In New Jersey. It's funny, that was just, I was just reading this story about this Navy SEALs, the front page of the Times today, who died during Hell Week, and he was from Manalapan. So like Manalapan was just right. uh, on my mind. I'm like, who else do I know from Manalapan? I think Lon's from Manalapan. And you and your former partner, Dan Rubin. Um, right. How, how did you guys connect? I don't remember this. We both went to Syracuse, did not know each other, but met through mutual friends out in LA and then hit it off, realized we had the same sensibilities. And I was at USC at the time and had to, the grad program, and I had to write, uh, took a sitcom spec class, which I'd never uh, written a sitcom before and Dan was the funniest person I know so basically said do you want to write this thing with me and we wrote a spec of the office together that was the first thing we wrote uh, I got an a minus on the class but that's what got us our agent and that's what got us our ma- our manager and our first job and all that other stuff um, and so the, on, the agent yeah. or the manager got you to bill Lawrence for that nobody's watching web right thing? because that was Broder at the time and then Bill, I think, likes to hire, at least back then, through his agency and find people that way. 
And so we were broader clients. And I really think the reason we mostly got the job, I think we interviewed against three other people and then there were just two of us and everyone else there was one of them. So it's like, all right, we'll take the guys that there are two of them. And sure. so that's, I think I have a feeling that's how we got them. That um, is the, the team advantage. But do, do you remember how you got that agent and manager? We, I, uh, I had become basically bar friends with this guy who was a friend of a friend. So my friend went to USC with me, we'd go out on the weekends and he was just a guy who came sometimes and hung out and we just hit it off. And then it turned out he was Chris Silverman's assistant who was the head of Broder at the time. And he found out I was a writer. So he was like, yeah, let me read your stuff. So then I sent him my stuff and he liked it and he passed it along to agents and they read it and liked it. And so that's how it happened. Um, so it was kind of luck and it was sort of like, hey, yeah, meet people in LA because you never know who can read your stuff and pass it along. Um, and that's and that's just how it happened. Yeah, that's why people say you got to be out here. You got to be in LA because right. this is how things happen. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know how you did it during COVID. I guess now you have Twitter and you can get known that way. I but, guess so, yeah. Um, but yeah, back then. And uh, so what are your memories of that, of worst week that the, the, uh, the first official job? Uh, I mean, a lot of the memories were you uh, whispering to me and Dan at certain points, like, this is not usually how it goes, by the way. Usually it's a lot different than this. So that, that definitely stuck out at me at the time. Um, it was uh, just, I especially felt so in over my head at that point for the, for that level. Cause it was a lot of high level people in that room. And especially for that show, it was kind of a lot of just story breaking, banging your head against the wall, trying to figure out how this good guy can have some bad luck. And it was, that was an especially tricky show, I think to jump into right off the bat um, is my memory of that. Yeah, it was it was hard for all of us. It was a very unique thing. I just my, yeah, my memory too is these sort of math equations where it'd be like, okay, we want by the end or the middle of the third act for the swimming pool to be on fire because that <laughs> right. would be that seems like that'd be a bad thing to happen. All right, how let's backtrack <laughs> right. and it was just all of these Rube Goldberg machines trying to like make things go wrong that build up to a really giant thing going wrong exactly right and it's not just okay here's characters and here's character comedy and, and what the character would say and we'll set up situations that would be funny it was this whole other thing that was just really really hard that do. was a high degree of difficulty for story breaking right because it was never just two scenes where it's just like okay kyle bornheimer and and uh, Kirkwood Smith are going to be in a room and just making jokes for two pages. And that's the scene. There was none of that. It was always like, no. right, how do you get from A to B, from B to C? And it was hard. It was, yeah. it was tricky. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I remember thinking that, you know, at the time I was like, oh, man, this is, this is a hard job. And then, um, and then after that, yeah. I realized that rooms don't have to necessarily be like that. There can be joke rooms. There can be just character talking. And, and so it was a different show, but it's fond memories. Cause you know, I'm still friends with Sam Laybourne. Uh, I still love Tarsus who I see every once in a while. So, you know, it, it was, was great people. It was, you yeah, know, it was, it was, it was a fun room. Um, and then, and, and Scrubs was, 
was you guys went to scrubs then we went to scrubs off that season nine the uh you know the good season of scrubs that everyone really loves (laughs) Uh, which was um which was also fun and and people we've kept in touch with throughout our entire careers we met on that show i mean uh lila stran who i just you know dan hired on night court who we just worked with again we met on scrubs so again some great people and uh, close friend throughout the years but that also was almost seemed doomed from the start at the at the very first table read Delarge referred to it as a noble failure right before we'd even read the script so it's like <laughs> all right so it's a weird way to set these things up um but uh but yeah and that that again was a very different room so that was our first you know experience with okay here's a joke room and then you go off and you pitch on jokes for a while um, and that was more, let's have two or three rooms going at a time and doing, I don't think we ever did on worst week. So it was, yeah. it was good. You know, the first, our first few jobs really showed us different aspects of how a writer's room can go. Uh, and a lot of our first jobs were one season shows. So you really got a sampling of this is how they did it. This is how they did it. This is how they did it, which I really, which I think helps you in a way as you come up and, and, you know, start running your own shows. Yeah. And you got to work with a lot of, uh, you know, great showrunners and people on those first shows that, that you were on and a lot of different styles, probably. Right. You know that you have, have you ever looked, have you looked at your IMDb page and seen that, the, the, the bio that's about you getting happy endings canceled? <laughs> yeah. So, so everyone knows, like, Lon's IMDb page is something about, like, being responsible for, for happy endings being canceled and being, like, at some point a... <laughs> Uh, a, a executive and canceling the show and like what what is that you guys that, were on just were you on happy endings just in the last season of happy endings we were on happy endings the two season two and season three we went on happy endings okay. um and that that was courtesy of jackie clark who if you checked my imdb page like free la to vegas free the first show i had picked up it was even more nonsense than that. And then my manager saw that and said, people might actually be looking you up now. So we have to take, so she took as much off as she could, I think, but it was even more bananas than that. But it was just a practical joke because Happy Endings had a fanatical fan base. So she somehow put on Twitter and put on IMDb that I was the person who uh, canceled Happy Endings to the point that Entertainment Weekly was like reaching out to me to ask about my role in canceling it <laughs> and the decision making behind it. And getting Twitter just roasting me like people believed it. It was it was an actual thing. So it was just a practical joke that uh, I love that it. I love up. that you you let it stay up there. It's just it's so great. Um, so you and Dan stay together through what Kimmy Schmidt like through Kimmy you know, Schmidt. Okay, right. and a bunch of shows in there. You're on Michael J. Fox. You're a minute work, um, and so. Yeah. Um, and Kimmy Schmidt, so you guys had to, you moved to, you moved to New York for that show? Was that when you moved? We, we moved to New York for Michael J. Fox show, which was Stan oh, Laybourne's right. show. So he brought us on from that, you know, back from Worst Week. And uh, we really thought, because we always wanted to go back to the East Coast, because that's where my family's from. That's where, you know, my wife's family from. That's where Dan's family's from. So the plan was always, if we could live on the East Coast, let's do it, which is why, you know, I'm here now. Uh, but we thought when Michael J. Fox got picked up. I mean, NBC immediately gave it a 22 episode order right from the pitch. So we thought, great, this is the next six years of our lives. This is great. This is going to go forever. Um, 
And then uh, it ended, that show ended up getting like 0.7s at a time when that was unheard of. Like now 0.7s a hit, but a 0.7 then is <laughs> the lows on that show got lower than any other show we were on. So we were off. We were, we were wrong about that. Uh, everyone but, thought that did seem like it was a shoe in and it was going to be huge. And yeah. Just... And it just didn't, it didn't even <laughs> open big. Uh, and it just fell, fell even more from there. Um, and it was a bummer, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a way to come back here. And then, and then Kimmy Schmidt was also in New York. So when we got that, we could stay in New York, uh, for another year. So that, that was nice. But yeah, originally we came back for Michael J. Fox, which, yeah, was, was unexpected that that did not go longer. And then how did the Kimmy Schmidt job happen? Uh, the Kimmy Schmidt was, we had met with uh, Tina Fey and Robert Carlock years earlier for uh, 30 Rock and did not get that show. And I think it was just, uh, they sort of remembered the name and maybe they got a sample and uh, we were in New York. So, you know, we had a good meeting and, and got brought on. And at the time, you know, we thought that was an NBC show. And then obviously halfway through, I think NBC realized this is not an NBC show. And that was kind of the first show that I think Netflix said, all right, you, NBC doesn't want this. We'll, we'll happily take it. Right. Um, yeah, but we didn't even find that out until after the first season. So that was, we were planning act breaks and, and keeping it relatively PG to PG-13. Uh, so we didn't know any of that until, until pretty late in the process. Hmm. Okay. And then, and I'm just curious about the, you know, obviously I know and love both you and Dan, and I'm not looking for, for dirt about the breakup. I was also <laughs> yeah. in a long-term you know, writing partnership that ended. And I'm just sort of curious not to get into like why it ended, but just that your process once that, you know, you started out as a, you know, in a team and then at a certain point you're now on your own and having to right. make your way. And you've, you've obviously done amazingly well, you know, both of you, but do you like, what do you remember from like that period of having to like figure out, okay, I'm now a solo act. Uh, it was, it was slightly, and not slightly, I mean, it was scary at first. It was terrifying because it was, you know, uh, I had to come up with new samples just with my own name on it. And then it was, it was my first time in seven years uh, uh, taking meetings alone. So what was that process going to be? So it was scary. And that was, I mean, I don't think we're segueing to the um, pilot yet. But that was, I sort of used that terror and uh, just tried to write. So that's when I banged out three scripts in a row. One is the, the first one I wrote turned into LA to Vegas, which you know ended up selling as a spec and getting on the air. Then the second one was Peak Eve. And then I wrote a third one that ended up going nowhere. But it really came from a place of, I just need material and I can either panic or just write. So, uh, so I wrote, um, and that and that kind of dug me out. It worked out. Uh, right. It ended up it ended up working out. But at first, uh, you know, yeah, it was it was scary. And those all those ideas were ideas that you had had before, or were they just like okay? 
I'm, you know, I, I'm sort of starting a little bit fresh. I need ideas. And those just came to you in that motivated by that fear. LA, LA to Vegas was one that uh, I had the idea. I remember I was driving when I had the idea. And as soon as I stopped driving, or even at a red light, I emailed my agents and said, what about a show about, you know, the commuter flight between LA to Vegas every weekend? And these would be some of the characters. And they wrote back, that's great. And then I, I just never got around to working on it. And uh, so years later, that's when I had the idea and said, I'll write this because they said they liked that at one point. So let's do that. Peak Eve came from, I was just a miserable dick at that time because I was scared and in a bad mood. I was like, I'm just going to write a <laughs> show about a miserable dick. And so that's what I did. So, uh, and, and, you know, I have always kept like a, like a document, a notes document of just the collection of story ideas that I, you know, keep and go back to. So when I have, maybe this is an episode of something, maybe this is an episode of something. So I had that character. And then when I knew I wanted to write something, I was like, let me look here and see what I have. And uh, there were a few that I, that I cobbled together into that script. So one of the ideas was uh, someone dating someone just until they get paid back from money they gave me. So that ended up in it. And then the email, getting pissed you weren't on a suicide text email was in that. So I'm like, that's a good story that fits in there. Um, so I just ended up you know, using some of those lines, those uh, blog lines that I had random story ideas and using that for that script around that character. Um, so they both came together relatively quickly. LA to Vegas was a little harder to crack, but Peak Eve, I was just like, this is just for fun. I knew it was kind of Larry David-esque. So I'm like, let me not be so beholden to story structure and that type of stuff. So it was a little looser in that way. Um, so, and also I just used my panic as a motivator. And so I, I wrote both of them relatively quickly, at least first drafts of them relatively quickly and then continued to tweak. Um, all right, we'll get into peak even a second, but just to spend a little bit on LA to Vegas. So yeah, so that's like, you know, that that's a pretty big concept for that show that, you know, to have this show that really was always on the plane, right? And in, in one right. direction, pretty much. I'm trying to remember how much you ended up expanding the, it out into. The, 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 I, the idea was that, that it was going to be the ride, the plane ride there and then the plane ride back. And uh, that was how the show was split up. And then by episode two, I was like, well, I had to write episode two as a, because they bought it and they wanted to see a second script to prove it was a show. And then as I was doing episode two, I was like, I I'm not going to do this. This doesn't work. So episode, <laughs> so I, I was beholden to that for the pilot. And then from there it was some episodes, I think maybe just took place all at the airport without even a flight going. But it was all basically around the plane, the terminal, and then the idea was to slowly branch out into the airport, which we gradually did by the end of the season. Um, but uh, because it's hard shooting in a plane, it's it's really it's a pain in the ass. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it's like you just made your job so hard for for no real reason. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, you know, and, and originally when I wrote that, I was just like, this is truly just a sample. So who cares? It's original characters. And then once it was a show, it was like, this is a good problem to have to figure it out. Um, but yeah, it was, 
it was it was certainly kind of tricky to break stories in that way. And I think we played around with timelines. I'm sure there were times they just ended up taking three flights in one weekend because we needed a separate flight. So it was just like, I don't know, they're on a plane again. Who cares? Um, but uh, look, it was it was a really fun experience. I mean, that cast was great. I put together a staff of people I mostly had worked with before and knew and loved. Um, so it was a good experience. But yeah, story breaking could get could get a little tricky sometimes. Um, but still, and it was fun. And that's obviously, you know, it's your first time running, a sh- you know, running a show, right? Right. And um, prior to that, uh, I can't remember what, like, title you guys had gotten up to on, like, Kimmy Schmidt. Like We were producers on Kimmy Schmidt, and then I had gone to Superstore off Kimmy Schmidt and was a supervising producer on Superstore. Um, but so, so we had ran rooms before uh but yeah we had I, i'd never even been a co-et by the time it was, it was running that show um and, it's, and especially on 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 pretty much every show we run i mean just the way it works is the higher levels have their little secret meetings um you know before room starts or in the middle of a room and so i'd never even been in those like little secret pre-meeting meetings so i was like oh shit now i'm gonna be running one of those all right we'll see how that goes uh and uh, so, yeah, it was, I was I was a little hesitant and I had Levitan, Steve Levitan. Uh, he was the one who really moved it along and got the show picked up. But, um, you know, he supported me, but he was relatively hands off and said, it's your show. And so that's why I, I ended up bringing in two people to help show run it with me, who were Josh Pysel and John Fenner who I'd worked with on Happy Endings and on Scrubs years before earlier. So at least I had that support because, you know, it, it felt like it was going to be an overwhelming endeavor. Yeah, it's an impossible job for <laughs> sure. And especially doing it your first time out on a new show. It's, right. it's, do you remember what, like, were there aspects that you remember as being like the hardest parts of that show running job? You know, it was relatively smooth, all things considered. Like, you know, the production was a hassle, um, but uh, so, you know, there were a lot of fires there that I had to be there for. But honestly, the network and the studio loved the show. So we didn't have any stories thrown out. So that was pretty smooth. Um, I had a line producer who sort of just turned into my producer on Outmatch named Rachel Field, who was phenomenal and was really supportive and handled a lot of that side of it. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing for me was, was just the realization I needed to control more than I wish I, you know, in retrospect, I would have let go of some stuff because it really was a lot of, I wasn't comfortable keeping a room and bothering them with my own hangups and hiccups. So if something was nagging at me, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it and didn't want to waste everyone's time, I'd spend everyone home at six o'clock and then I'd go home and bang my head against the wall for four hours and just write it myself. Uh, Which was also stressful, but also is sort of one of my favorite parts of writing is just kind of like, the actual writing and sitting there alone and toiling and doing that. 
but that made it unnecessarily stressful. I think since then I've learned how to use a room better and how to delegate a little bit better and how to pinpoint exactly what I'm trying to say better. Uh, so that was a learning experience, but at the time it really was, I, I just want to seem like a good boss. Everyone can go home and I'll just fry myself up with this. Uh, right. So That's yeah, understandable. So, so I guess managing the room was the thing that I needed to to learn how to do a little bit a little bit better as I you know progress. Tired of the same old game nights? Looking for a fun new activity to do with your family, your partner, your friends, or by yourself? Then Hunt a Killer is for you. Solve a murder, hunt a killer. You get to be the detective. Sort through evidence, piece together clues, and solve the case with an immersive murder mystery game. The games come with dossiers, maps, evidence, and more to help you crack an unsolved case. There are dozens of standalone mysteries, or you can subscribe to an immersive multi-part crime case. I did the immersive multi-part crime case. I subscribed to the uh, Mallory Rock case, uh, and it was really fun. Um, They send you, just like the ad says, they send you all the stuff, the map, the dossier, evidence, um, and then I think this one was... uh, this one was six uh, episodes, basically, and you're trying to solve the murder of your friend, and um, it was just really fun. Like, there's it unfurls, sorry, it unfolds like uh, your favorite British detective show, even though it's not British, um, and you, you sort of get to be the uh, David Tennant in it, and. It's a great way to pass the time. I love a structured good time, and uh, this was a great excuse to get together with a handful of friends and and play this game. Um, join the hunt today. Go to huntakiller.com slash deadpilots and use the code deadpilots, D-E-A-D-P-I-L-O-T-S, for $10 off your purchase. That's huntakiller.com slash deadpilots. Most game shows quiz contestants about topics they don't even care about. But for more than 100 episodes, the Go Fact Yourself podcast has asked celebrity guests trivia about topics they choose for themselves. And introduced them to some of their personal heroes along the way. Oh my gosh. Shut up. <laughs> oh, I feel like I'm going to cry. Oh my stuff. <laughs> it's so, so exciting. Join me, J. Keith Van Stratton. And me, Helen Hong. Along with guests like DJ Jazzy Jeff, Yardley Smith, Roxanne Gay, and so many more on the trivia game show podcast, Go Fact Yourself. Twice a month, every month on Maximum Fun. Okay, so, all right, let's, so Peak Eve, um, so I think you said in our quick little interview, you wanted to, I can't remember how you put it, but you wanted to write a character and you just said it now, like an asshole. (laughs) Right. Right. um, Like that was the mood you were, you were in. Um, and you had these little bits and pieces in your, in your journal of, of ideas. Um, and so it really was all coming from this Eve character. That was the starting place. You did, you, you sort of had her voice in your head and that's where this began. Right. Right. And it, yeah, it, I, I had that voice in my head. I had, you know, the little, you know, the, the bits and the little vignettes of, you know, when I'm sitting in a doctor's office, what annoys me about those forms. And I'm just like, let me put that into this character. All of like the, 
you know, the the shittiest parts of things, I think, sometimes. I'm like, I'm going to put that into her and see if it's funny and see what works. Um, so the character, and then I just built it out from there. You know, I had those, you know, the things she would say, the way she would see things. And then it was sort of, okay, so who is that funny now to populate around her to see her interact with? Uh, so that it, it really was more, most of my ideas really are kind of story driven and story based and let me get these beats down and then I'll sort of figure out what character makes sense with them later, depending. But this was one of the first ones where I was like, let me just build out from this pure character and see see what happens. And it was always going to be a woman, uh, not not a man. I think so, because I think it was just going to be more fun if it was you had a 22-year-old woman doing this than like a just a petty, shitty 23-year-old guy. I, I don't know. It just seemed like a more fun character for these things to be said. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, there's, you know, it's difficult subject matter. Like, I find it really funny you know i don't i've never i haven't lost anyone to suicide um sure. you know was that so when fx bought this was that ever a concern the sort of uh glibness or whatever the treatment of this suicidal person that that never came up once i think i think if anything that's what drew fx to it because fx seems to like that type of stuff you know i feel like even watching the bear which isn't exactly a comedy but I think that was one of the things they were leaning into was the darkness and, and that tone. Um, so that 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 really didn't come up once. Right. I mean, it does enable you to just be so outrageous. And there's, you know, there's so much great comedy that comes out of it. The trip to the gun store and, right. you know, all of, um, you know, it, she definitely feels like she is a descendant of Elaine Bennis, right? I mean, right but pushed much right and i think uh yeah i mean I, I think maybe indirectly what it was all a response to is because you know when it ultimately got passed on i ended up writing a second script for that one too because i wanted to see a second episode but uh you know what they told me ultimately and it seemed like they went back and forth with her to shoot it for at least a little while and then they said a lot of people just couldn't get their heads around why she was such an asshole so look, I guess you could take that from as, yeah, why is she so glib about someone's suicidal tendencies? Like maybe that is all part and parcel of that, but that specific never came up. But ultimately the past came from half the room who just couldn't wrap their head around why she was like this. And it's just like, eh, fair enough. So funny, a question I never asked. Yeah, like, I, right. I was just like this. Some people are like this. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just um, right. Some people are like this. It, it struck me as like a. I mean, I think you could, they ultimately wanted to pass regardless. So maybe, you know, you're retrofitting excuses, but it, it's, it is a standard broadcast note of why is someone like this? And then ultimately you have to tie it into the pilot of some big revelation of something that happened. So FX, what I you know thought you could get away with is, yeah, they don't give a shit about why. It's just, they're like this. This is what happens. It feels like in cable, you could get a little bit away with that more than in broadcast. Where, yeah, broadcast show, first of all, everyone has to be likable. But if someone's not, you need a really good reason to explain why they're not. Uh, which is why I also knew that was never going to be a broadcast show for a billion different reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's just no way. But any any explanation for why she's this way would have just been so terrible. Right, exactly. Yeah, and part of it is some people are just assholes and there's nothing behind it. Um, and 
That's... It would also just ruin the enjoyment of her being such an asshole if we found this rosebud moment where we had to really like understand it and sympathize with it, or whatever. It's just like right. that that right. kills the the fun. Right. What what's the more important to see than yeah is is the reason why someone becomes why they become, and you know in some cases the generalization generalization. But what's a little more interesting is seeing those moments of vulnerability sprinkled in, and then you can do the math. Oh, a lot of this ask list comes from that particular vulnerability, which we've never said out loud or linked, but you, you get it. You're a smart audience. You get, you see what scares her a little, what she does hate about herself a little, and that's, this is how it comes out instead. Um, but, you know, especially for a broadcast show, you probably do a flashback where you see the moment where she was left on a porch, or I don't know what happens, but... <laughs> um... It, it is, I know you said it was sort of, you know, a little bit pieced together and you weren't as concerned with story structure, but the, the payoff at the end when she finally does cry because he's, you know, because Josh is, is going to, is back going to kill himself is a really, that's a really nice, well-structured payoff, right. uh, I thought. So like kudos for just how that <laughs> all sort Thanks. of comes comes back around um did uh you know the cold uh, a cold open for you know teaser for shows you know that first scene to me is always just like the world's hardest writing job um at what point did that scene with the parents and the friends was that just like early on you know because it's this sort of off story just pure character introduction right. moment um it's not launching plot or anything do you remember where you know what point that in in the process that came it can't i mean i i generally like to start any script with a standalone cold open that just introduces the character that is not tied to plot and then inevitably what happens is in development a network says no, bring in the mother-in-law. You're not, you don't meet till page 19 in the cold open. We want to see her in page one. So it's like, all right, forget that character standalone cold open. Uh, but that's how I try to frame every single one of my scripts. So I knew right off the bat I wanted to do a standalone cold open. And then it was just drawing from my past. I remember trying to sleep when I was younger, my parents always being loud, having a million people over. And so using that as my own experience, like, all right, how would a dick have handled that? Um and uh, and so it was built out from there. So I think usually my process with those types of cold opens is I know I want to do standalone. What's the best way to introduce this character? What is the best thumbnail version you can get of them? What what type of scenario you throw them in so you get it? And then I'll spend anywhere from a day to a month banging my head against a wall trying to figure out okay what is the standalone cold open? Sometimes that's what I write last. I mean for all I don't remember specifically when I wrote that one. But it wouldn't surprise me if I didn't start with that scene, if I just came around to it halfway through the script and said, that's how I'm going to introduce her. Um, I don't totally remember, but that generally my process is I'm going to start with the standalone and then however long it takes me to figure out, I figure it out. And then depending on the development, it might just get cut anyway. But other, so other than that note that you were getting from them about like, why is she like this? Were there, do you remember what other notes that FX had for you? They wanted it to be about something bigger. So even when they first read the script and I had to go in with a pitch, I really had no overlying 
theme or anything about what that was going to be about. I just like that character. But then it was made clear to me if you're pitching this to FX and they're thinking about buying it, it needs to be clear. It's about something bigger. Uh, so, um, so I think at first, with my original pitch, when I went to pitch was sort of like it revolves around, uh, you know, uh, depression a little bit or, or mental illness or, you know, trying to make it into something like that. Like there was, it was a depression anxiety issue and how Generation Z deals with that you know, type of thing. I don't even remember if that's exactly what it was, but it was an attempt to make it about something bigger. And I think in ensuing drafts, it kept turning into that. So, you know, there was, I think in the last version, there was a, you know, a speech about, you know, checking your, and this was the height of Trump era, you know, and, and all these things going on, checking for, you know, New York Times to see how the world is burning now and getting these constant alerts and, then turning it into she's the product of her times and this is how the youth of America is growing up today in this environment and how does it affect them. So those were all attempts at answers to the note of make this about something more than her, uh, which is what they wanted. That was the biggest note that I feel like I kept trying to hit. And then there was you know, FX, they're, they're not big with notes. I think they have a few macro ones. And then there were a few very, you know, granular things like make it clear that, that you know, this guy is going to come back and she'll see him again. And this isn't the end of it. Make it clear this. So granular things. And then the macro, what is this show really about? Which, you know, you keep just writing different things and hoping one of them makes it seem like that's what it's going to be about. Uh, but... That that was the biggest. That was the biggest thing. Yeah, because you you rarely do start with theme when you're writing something, and yet they always want to know what the theme is. It's just like I don't know if I if I started with theme, it would probably be terrible because I, I would just be you know hitting that over the head. Like the theme always kind of emerges from you know once once you have it, you're like, oh, this is you know, there's this. This turns out that's about that, but you don't start with that. No, and it's. It's and and then it's trying to reverse engineer it, and it uh, and then it's like, is this really what the show is about? Like, all right, let's go, let's go with this. Um, but no, I don't know. I, I guess every show needs a theme now, though. I mean, especially especially in the cable streaming world. I mean, going out and pitching now, it seems like the big question is like, all right, well, what is this show really about? What is it saying about the world today? What is going on? Broadcast networks seem less you know beholden to that though there is some but yeah i don't even go to my agents or manager with an idea unless i have some idea this is the bigger thing it's really about and then whatever and i'll figure it out later i guess <laughs> yeah well look i i appreciate any mention of you know the climate crisis uh in in scripts even you know climate anxiety <laughs> those in there yeah. uh although you are uh you are supposed to put those caps on the plastic bottles before you put them in the recycling, just, oh, it's just a PSA, just go. people know you aren't supposed to put them in loose, put those caps on, they're better able to deal with it. Um, did, did <laughs> they, were, they on, were they on you about like, why is, because it seems, 
if I'm imagining writing this, that there's just the fun of this guy's going to kill himself and I'm not on the text and it starts there. When right. you have that idea, you're not like, you don't know why the guy's killing himself, right? It's just like, you need right. the guy who's killing himself who she used to date for all of these fun machinations to happen. Um, and But at a certain point, you have to explain, well, why is he killing himself, right? Well, I mean, was that a tricky part of writing this? It, it, really, it really wasn't, because again, I could just, go to those darker places and I, I sort of got it. I didn't even take that many passes at that speech. I don't think. I, again, it was, it was enough I could draw on of my own thoughts I have and weird anxieties I have that I was like, that could build into this character and sort of explain it. Um, and I never got a note on it and it seemed to track. Um, and it was fine. So I, I did. Because that didn't feel manufactured to me. It was like, I could get enough in that guy's head too where it's like, I can I can write this. Um, I mean, again, yeah, I, I probably would do a better job of it then than I would now. Uh, but again, then it's a dark script. I was in a dark place, and so those elements came out, you know, without without much deliberation or, or head banging against the wall. And, and were you saying before that like you really were sort of thinking this was a writing sample just to have something with your name on it when you were writing it um or it was that like a liberating uh it it, it totally was because i really was you know i've been writing for dan with i mean with dan for uh for years and had nothing that was what's emblematic of, of my own voice at this point and i wrote LA to Vegas, knowing that was a little more conceptual than anything else. Uh, it, it really was. I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I might be unemployable. Let me write <laughs> one thing for broadcast, one thing for cable. And so the broadcast was LA to Vegas. And it's like, I, let me write something for cable. Uh, and it was purely like, let me show what my voice can be and write something that is someone wouldn't expect a, a I don't know how old I was at the time, 35, a 35, 34 year old man to write, um, to show I range and, uh, <laughs> and you can feel okay about taking a meeting with me. Uh, and so that's, so that's what it was. So it was purely like, let me just have some fun with this and get as weird and dark and see if that <laughs> helps. Uh, and it did, that's a lot of meetings and, uh, yeah, was, was, it's probably still my best, you know, my most well-received script. Um, you know, people, it's gotten me a lot of meetings, a lot of, uh, I don't know if it's gotten me any, probably I think it's gotten me a few jobs. And so it's been overall promising. I think, yeah, I worked on, I'm sorry with Andrea Savage. I'm almost positive that's the script you read for, I'm sorry. Um, that would totally so, make sense. That'd be a great sample for that. Show. Right, right. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, so, so it truly was just, just getting a voice and hitting that hard. Cause, uh, that's what I felt like needed, you know, <laughs> at that point. So, uh, Outmatched was the show you did. So LA to Vegas is on for a season and then, um, where was Outmatched like the next season and. So LA to Vegas, right. That that did not get picked up. And then I got from 20th two scripts, two blinds. One of the blinds turned into outmatched. Uh, another blind turned into a spec I wrote 
uh, with uh, the guy who made Hidden Figures, Ted Melfi, uh, which the so our match uh, was 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 a promising project. Uh, so that was was just an idea I had, and I really was just at that point. Uh, I'm purely gonna sell out. Uh, I have two scripts. I'm gonna write two. Multi, straight down the middle multi-cams just to show that's something also I can do because again I got to just... so again it was coming off of LA to Vegas uh, I uh, the I mean broadcast TV had already been going through a change at that point where just ratings were plummeting but I was like and Fox had just made the decision we're canceling all of our single cameras. So I sort of made a bet on broadcast networks are gonna get back to basics and start making multi-cams because they're cheap and everything gets a 0.9 anyway at this point. So they're gonna double down on multi-cams, which I was not right on, but at least for them it didn't matter because I sold both, got both made as a pilot. Um, but, but that was just a bet I made that people are gonna be looking for multi-cams moving forward. I'm gonna show that I can write them uh, and, and so I wrote two multi-cams and Outmatched came from that. It was a family comedy. Um, was, uh, you know, whatever. You can't complain it got on the air, but in retrospect, maybe not the, what I should have gone right out with. Maybe I should have taken a swing and taken a risk back when I had some, uh, you know, had a sh just had a show on the air and, and probably could have creatively taken more of a risk than I did with those two projects. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so I ended up selling outmatched as a, uh, to Fox, you know, who I had a great relationship with and they liked the pitch and, uh, ended up selling that as a spec to ABC and both through 20th. And then that was the year that everyone really started cutting back their pilot orders. I think Fox made three or four pilot, comedy pilots that season, and two were single cam, two were multi-cam, and they decided to pick up one, and it was it was outmatched. Uh, not sure I what think, else to Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, because um, I don't know that people really understand the you know, the pressures and, and the mindset you can get into. So you're saying, you know, you have these blind deals and for people who don't understand that, it's sort of like they're, they're saying, we're going to pay you for an idea and we'll figure, figure it out, but we're paying you for whatever you come up with. Right. Um, and it sounds to me, because I've done this too, you got into a strategic mindset, a market-driven strategic mindset. So um you you'd like to think as a writer you're always artistically driven but in this business since it's a business it's very easy to fall into a strategic driven right. mindset and what are people buying what does the market want let me try and deliver you know they're paying me this money let me try and make them happy whereas it seems like peak eve was something that you were driven to write because you had an artistic impulse that you wonder write this kind of character right. and it was something that was here and now outmatched is like what's going to sell you know what are they right. looking for now and it's a sort of cynical you know approach now, right 
you know, you're talking to the guy who, who, who did work it, you know? And so it's just <laughs> right. like, you know, I, I, I'm very familiar with that, but it's funny how it just like, it doesn't, even when it works out, if the show got, got made and got on the air, like it's, it, it's like, it, it kind of never works out. Right. 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 <laughs> and, and look, and it, it ended up being fun because there's whatever you're writing, you find things you like about it. Cause I can't imagine writing something you truly hate. Like it, so as I'm writing, I'm like, oh, I actually like this. It gets to a place where I'm really enjoying this. The idea feels a little bit like a sellout, a little cheesy, but also I, I'm finding things I like. This is funny. I like this. I like doing this. Um, it's And then you start losing the forest through the trees, and then you end up looking at it, and it's just like, but I've never watched that. So I just made this thing that, like, even though I like things I like, I would never sit down and watch this show. Um, but, you know... It was still a great experience overall because, again, I love the staff uh, that I put together. We had so much fun in that room. The cast was an absolute dream. So going down to set was legitimately fun. Even the kids were all fun. Like, they just come down and they all love each other. And it was just like it really was. It was a pretty fun way to spend four or five months. But, uh, but you know... Outmatches is the first thing where if someone said it was a Lon Zimmett show, I'm, I'm mailing that to them and saying, check this out, this is it. Um, whereas LA to Vegas was certainly closer to that. Um, and, and still, but there are still jokes in Outmatch that I would point to and it's where it's like, that's funny. People watching that would, would if, they, if you just watch that, you would laugh at that joke. That's a very funny joke. That's a funny joke. Like the stuff people were pitching was great. Uh, it's just not totally my sensibility. You know, it, it's really not. Um, but still, you know, still a good, still do not regret anything. You know, still right. still proud of everything I've done in, in different forms. And so it's cool. I didn't realize that. So you and Dan, are, you know, work together again on, on Night Court. Can you tell me like a, a little bit about how that happened and how that was? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, the... You know, without getting too in, in depth, I mean, the way the, the Kimmy Schmidt thing played out was just, I, uh, uh, I, I think I have many, you know, strong, you know, suits in a, in a writer's room, and I'm, and I'm acutely aware of my, what my weaknesses are in a writer's room. And I think I was not a great fit for anything Tina and Robert wanted to do, because I'm just not the guy who at four in the morning is coming up with the joke that we've been pitching on for 45 minutes that gets us out of that room. I'm just not that joke machine who's going to get you out of there. And, but I am the guy who's slightly annoyed at four in the morning that we've been pitching on this joke for half an hour. <laughs> um, and so I do not blame them. That's not the energy they were looking for. And that is certainly not the room I want to be in, especially when at the time I had two kids and just wanted to go home. Uh, but, you know, Dan decided to stay and uh, I left. And so things were, you know, it was hard. It was hard to get over. You know, he was one of my best friends for a while. Uh, we'd worked together for years. So, so the relationship was chilly for a while after that. But, you know, after a year, after two years, we, yeah, still one of my best friends, you know? So it was just like, I don't know, that's something missing in my life. So we had enough moments together where we ended up getting together and having a few drinks and you know having fun 
And then you accumulate those throughout the years that I think by the time LA to Vegas had gotten picked up, I, and I was like, I don't know if I want to run this alone, but I, you know, I know I could run this with Dan. So I think at that point I asked Dan, do you want to do this with me? And I think at that point he was still, I'm in New York. I don't want to make, I, he want him. He was still going. I think he would have, he, it would have been a type of thing where he would have come for six episodes, but he didn't want to have to move back to LA. He wanted to stay here, but it was, it was fine. So at that point, the relationship, we were close enough again. We were good enough friends that by the time it got to outmatched, I knew if Dan's willing to do this and come to LA now, we're going to do this. So I ended up staffing him on Outmatched. And then when he got his show picked up, uh, you know, I think it was a, it was a given. He was going to, you know, bring me on because we still, we still really work exactly the same as we did 15 years ago, um, you know, for better and for worse. Uh, you know, there were enough times on Outmatch and on Night Court where it was still just me and him and two writer's assistants at 2.30 in the morning noodling over like a block in a way that drives anyone else insane, but it's just our process. So we just fit back into it pretty naturally. And yeah, I think we elevate each other in a bunch of ways that, and complement each other in a bunch of ways that, yeah, I think we just love working together. So that, that, that warms my heart. I, I love hearing that. And what's the status of, of Night Court? Where is that show and when's it going to be on? It's on NBC. I think it's going to premiere either January or February. We got uh, 13 episodes and then they ended up giving it three more, you know, the famous back three uh, in broadcast. Uh, so it's, it's a 16 episode order. I don't think it has a night yet. I think NBC is now putting, I think their comedy block is eight to nine on Friday nights is what they're saying. I think it's Lopez v. Lopez and Young Rock maybe is what's paired. So we're mid-season, maybe replacing one of those. Who knows what network schedules are anymore. Um, but network was really happy with it. Uh, you know, again, just just a lot of a lot of stuff that harkens back to the original show, which I actually never really watched until starting this. <laughs> Um, but it was fun. That's cool. Yeah, it's uh, the broadcast business is quite different from when you it's, started out. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it really is. It is accelerating too, in a way that now NBC might not have 10 o'clock nights. I mean, which I guess they already tried once before, but now it feels real and scary in a way that, yeah, why would any broadcast ever do that? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what the upside is if you're, how are you selling advertising? when 1.7 million people watch. I just right. don't know. Uh, and so you're living in, where in Jersey are you? We are in a place called Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Uh -huh. so, I know it well. That's right near Morristown, yeah. where I grew it up. It is right near Morristown, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, we, it's where my dad's medical office was. Um, it was in Basking Ridge. Um, we so go very to, nice. I think it's downtown Morristown. Is that considered downtown? But we The, the, the green? Yeah. 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 So I go there with the girls a lot. We go to the shops and there's a little ice cream shop and there's a toy store and they love it. Um, it's a real little town going on there. I love Marston. Yeah. That's great. Uh, All right. I love that you're in Basking Ridge. I'm, I'm, I'm jealous. It's a great uh, being in Morris County. It's the best. It's great. Um, um, yeah, it really, it really worked out, uh, especially during 
COVID because it was like, oh, everything has moved to Zoom now. So now I'm not the weird guy who has to take meetings. I can just do them over Zoom and everybody now is accustomed to that. It doesn't matter where I am. Um, so at least that change was useful for a two-year pandemic. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. It, it's just where we want to be and we're, and we're making it. We're making it work. That's awesome. Well, it was great to be able to reconnect and to uh, to to read this script, which I I just listened back through it again, and really, I, I think Dylan was just kind of perfect. Eve. She was she was perfect, and she was. We never. That was one thing I regret about the thing we never did with her because I really think it would have helped. But we were in. I think there was a crunch because they we wanted to get it set up before LA to Vegas, so that might have been set up. Or there was a rush to set it up with the positions because we were not going to be able to sell it because I had two things sold already. So it was like, we're going to have to sell this position list. No one is going to want a position list. And so there was a rush to set it up. But I think if there wasn't that rush, we actually would have tried to go to talent, which I think would have helped move the needle because we might have been able to get the young, interesting actress that would have helped. But I remember because I'd worked with Dylan on Kimmy Schmidt so knew her voice so she was on my original list because she seemed perfect for it. then hearing her doing it, it was just like yeah she would have been she was right she i was yeah. absolutely picturing her a lot of the time as i was writing it because she has the perfect intonation for it she was just she's great yeah it's that gen z like affect i, I don't know how to describe it but she just it, it's hard for me to even hear the you know imagine this character not with her voice yeah. i mean i guess i could see you know aubrey plaza is maybe you know too old it's but but like uh, you know aubrey plaza's voice i could hear but to me it was just like oh my gosh yeah Dylan there's just there, like there's just a built-in cynicism with every word she delivers dylan that that helps sell that character that's great right. and it sort of answers to the why is she like this i don't know like why i don't i never <laughs> think like why is dylan like this this is right. just you know that's just what she's like right um it was really it, it was really fun to hear so thank you uh, for, that's really nice thank you so much andrew i'm i'm glad you read it i'm glad you liked it that actually that really means a lot to me so thank you um we still uh yeah me and dan still said a lot of the stuff that you and ted uh you know from worst week like the little things you said to us just little moments just it was all i don't know i think on your first job that type of stuff stays with you a little bit and i and i think we would have truly had no idea what we were doing and felt totally out of it if it wasn't you guys sort of pulling us aside being like you guys are doing all right none of this is not normal you guys are doing fine don't worry about it which really i think we need it at that point in our lives so, so oh my god that. yeah it all feels like every moment feels like so weighty right like oh that right. joke that joke died I'm, uh, <laughs> like right. i'm never my career's over it's never it's like, right. no it's a long game like it's okay yeah. no um, that was great that was helpful to hear at the time believe me well, you're you're very welcome. All right, Lon, great to see you. All right, Thanks you too. Doing this. All right, hope to talk to you soon. All right, bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. This podcast is produced by me and my co-host Ben Blacker, and our associate producer Noah Finling. It is edited and mixed by Jordan Katz. If you haven't already, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already, subscribe. I hope everyone listening subscribes i would love it if you would leave us a review it'd be great if you would follow us on social media we're on twitter at dead pilots pod and on instagram at dead pilot society but the best thing would be if you could recommend us to a friend um, 
especially if you're listening to still listening to me at this point on an interview episode you're probably you know, maybe a writer or someone interested in writing someone wants to be a writer maybe you know other people uh, who feel the same so you know let them know about the show all right that's it for me until next time i'm andrew reich thanks for listening maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported